What's going on, folks? Um, so I wanted to come on here and record this, um, and I'm probably going to put this at the beginning of quite a few episodes here coming up. Um, a comrade of mine uh, is going through some hard times with their landlord. Um, they have been told uh, due to their own homelessness struggle and lack of a job, which has you know not allowed them to pay rent, uh, they've been told by their landlord that they have a few options if they want to continue having a home uh, to live in with themselves, their spouse, and their children. Um, they've been told that they either need to A, raise a lump sum of $5,000 and all the back rent will be forgiven, which is ridiculous. And you know, someone in this position cannot come up with that money in this, you know, kind of fashion, or the landlord is going to raise their rent from 800 to 1250. Um, they obviously already could not afford 800. So charging them 450 more dollars a month will not make more money appear in their pocket. Um, so I am coming on here to ask for some help. Um, one of their friends was so kind as to set up a GoFundMe for them. Or uh, So I would like to ask you folks to go ahead and, you know, I usually get about 30 listeners in episode. If we could each give $5, that's about a certain amount of money. <laughs> wow, my math just went out the door. Um... Yeah, if we each gave $5, that's $150 towards, you know, their their money. And that would be incredible because they're picking up some extra shifts. They're trying to do something to make this money, but it's just not going to be there all by themselves. So anything that you can do to dedicate and help these folks out, they already have $500 um, raised. Uh, but the, the GoFundMe is titled help the Crespo family keep their home. There's an adorable picture of uh, my comrade uh, and their family. Um, uh, so I will link that in every single one of my episodes coming up. If you folks felt as willing uh, to share that as well, if you can't donate that money, that would also be incredible. You know, this is a group of people who need a home just as many of us are struggling to you know keep ours we should remember that there are many of us who who need help and if there's any way that we can help each other we should be doing that um so thank you uh again if you can't give i completely understand but this is a comrade in need so i figured i'd use what little influence i had here uh to try to lift that up so if you can please donate that would be um, incredible or share. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. What's going on, motherfuckers? Uh, welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the podcast that is educating about and working towards a true people's liberation movement, uh, and hopefully one day a true proletarian revolution. Um, but until we get there, I'm your host, Josh. Nice to see you. Uh, hope everyone is well. 
If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for stopping by. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Just so you know ahead of time, I am driving, so there might be some background noise, and I apologize for that. If this is you coming back, much appreciated. Um, And I hope I can do a decent enough show to get you to come back again. So, yeah, today we are going to be talking about a few things that... um, you know, it might seem a little minuscule, but I think it's good for our understanding of what it is that needs to be done. Um, you know, so I spend a lot of time reading Lenin because I am depressed and don't do anything except for read. <laughs> so I've been spending a lot of time reading Lenin, listening to audiobooks while I'm doing stuff around the house as well. Um, And I recently listened to a piece of his called How the Spark Was Nearly Extinguished. Um, Spark is in quotation marks uh, because the magazine that he was working on uh, at the time was called Iskra, which means spark. Um, Supposedly, that's what the, the... If I'm wrong on that, don't come after me. Come after socialism for all, which, side note, If you don't already, go ahead and check out Socialism for All. Give them a subscribe. Give them a like on YouTube. Because both them and Comrade Reads, um, that's R-E-A-D-S as in books, read books, you know, Comrade Reads. um, They both publish audiobooks. Uh, Comrade Reads goes on Spotify and YouTube. Socialism for All, as far as I know, is only on YouTube. Um... But they go through a bunch of Marxist.org texts and read through those. So that's cool because a lot of books, uh, well, I should say a lot of, you know, theory specifically like pamphlets and shit like that. They don't have as many audiobooks um, as you might think. I mean, there's quite a few out there, but you got to search for them. Um, but these channels both put up quite a bit and it's, you know... It's cool to have audiobooks because, like, sometimes I like to, you know, like, go do shit while I'm trying to read. That's why I like podcasts. That's why I make podcasts because I think they're useful in that way. Um, but, like, obviously it's pretty hard to, like, read a book and cook a meal at the same time. Although I was trying to do that yesterday. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I like audiobooks. Check out Socialism for All and Comrade Reads. That's basically my point. But anyways. So, we did, um... We were listening to... I was listening to, um... Uh... How the Spark Was Nearly Extinguished by Lenin. And, um... It's basically, like I said, about how the magazine that he was a part of was almost kind of like trashed and and put down um and it kind of just details some stories between himself um Axelrod um Plakhanov um and others um and uh kind of just like their interrelations and kind of because they were the ones who were all supposed to be editing and working on this this magazine um and it's just kind of like the you know Lennon goes through in details the different interactions that they had um 
And it seems like a really minuscule writing because you're like, why the fuck are they just writing about like, oh, I went over to, you know, Plekhanov's or Axelrod's room and Plekhanov seemed upset and, you know, Axelrod seemed confused and da 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 Um, it's pretty funny. Um, but like at the same time, it's important because, you know, one thing that a lot of people on the left do not always have a trained eye for is both kind of opportunism and revisionism. Um, a lot of folks on the left, of course, don't necessarily call themselves Marxist, um, uh, don't ascribe to Marxism specifically, and so they don't really dedicate any time to, like, learning a lot of the stuff that, you know, you would be refuting and saying this is revisionism or this is opportunism. So you don't oftentimes recognize it as such because you're not seeing where the original is being revised and how the original is being reformed. Because, you know, this, you know, in a lot of cases, our understanding of leftism, quote unquote, and stuff like this comes from folks like myself, from YouTube channels, um from all kinds of secondhand sources because a lot of us have so little time to spend on reading, to spend on, you know, learning any of this. Even listening to podcasts and YouTube channels sometimes can be overwhelming because, like, you know, you're trying to do shit and trying to learn at the same time, all just trying to be able to be a better, you know, comrade or whatever trying to figure out how to change things in your locale, you know, whatever. It's hard because, like, we're not given the proper opportunity. We're not given a lot of the base level and foundational education surrounding things like economics, sociology, history. Like, so especially here in the United States and, you know, a lot of other places because capitalism you really have to dedicate a lot of your time to simply unlearning before you can even dedicate any time to learning. So yeah, a lot of younger leftists kind of come through this leftist pipeline, um, which is cool, you know, like memes and different YouTube channels are out here radicalizing folks. That's pretty dope. Um, But the only issue becomes a lot of this, and I've said it before on my show, a lot of the stuff that we are talking about cannot be just a simple, it can't just be some theory, right? Like, you know, when you're talking about ending capitalist exploitation of the working class, it can't just be some, you know, random, quote unquote, common sense understanding of how to solve the problem. You have, I mean, People like Marx and Engels, people like Lenin, all these different revolutionaries, like, they dedicated their entire lives to trying to be able to figure out how the fuck to get this to work. And in a lot of cases, a lot of them, quote unquote, failed at certain turns or miscalculated or whatever you want to describe it as. And yet you have people today who think without reading a word of Marx, without reading a word of Lenin or Mao or Stalin, 
understanding any kind of, you know, foundational science to the process, the process that is trying to be had here. And they think that they're going to be able to come with, uh, you know, an irrefutable strategy for seeing through revolution and seeing through a successful revolution at that. And that's not the case. And I mean, I guess even that is taking some things for granted because a lot of revisionist and reformist uh, theories say, we don't need a revolution. We don't need a revolution. What are you talking about? Um, So, you know, it's been a long, almost 200 years now for Marxism, um, but it's still, you know, pushing along. It's still kicking. And the reason is because ultimately, again, the difference in a lot of cases between Marxism, anarchism, general socialism, or quote-unquote leftism is the science that Marxism contains in comparison. And this is commonly like a refuted point, like folks are like, no, you're just, uh, you know, you're just a fucking Marxist who wants to jerk off about how smart they are and say, oh, I'm a, you know, I understand science, da 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 That's a complete and utter, like, disconnection from what the claim to science that Marxism has actually means. So first and foremost, it's been a few hundred years, but philosophy is a science. And philosophy, up until the scientific revolution, was wholeheartedly connected at the hip to what we now call the, quote, hard sciences. Because, you know, folks like Marx and Engels, folks like Lenin, the reason why they were philosophers and theoreticians is because they didn't just like grab some random thoughts that popped into their head and say, you know what, I'm going to pursue this. They dedicated long, hard hours of study to, you know, thoughtful and abstract experimentation through theory, through, you know, polemics, debates, uh, organizing, active, you know, struggle within the working class as well, and writing about their experiences, what worked, what didn't work, learning their lessons over time. That is a scientific process, right? You start with a theory. You go from that theory, you set up your experiment. You execute your experiment. From your experiment, you compound on your results and your conclusions. You see if your results and your conclusions prove or disprove your theory. If they prove your theory, you should test it again. If they disprove your theory, you should test it again. That is the difference between a science and a random common sense, quote-unquote, idea about how electing Bernie Sanders or, you know, if we, you know, get Joe Biden and we, we push him left, yeah, see how well that's going, huh, guys? None of that shit is possible. And it's not, honestly, because these people are stupid or ignorant or whatever. It's because we have been taught to not fail and try again. 
Trial and error is so distant from the culture that we live in. If something doesn't work right away, you cast it aside. If, you know, uh, I can't even think of a specific example, but I think that pretty much sums it up that if, you know, you if we try something here in the U.S. and it doesn't work, whether that's in our own personal lives or as a, you know, a government or a country, I mean... When it comes to wars and imperialism, we try, try again, don't you worry. But when it comes to, oh, maybe if we extend, you know, this social uh, uh, net to these folks, maybe this will help them. No. No, we'll never know because they're poor. And so why, you know, they shouldn't be poor. What are you talking about? Nobody, nobody should be poor. So it's your fault for being poor. We're not going to do anything to alleviate that. And then when you don't come out of that poverty... When you fall into crime for the sake of survival, we'll throw you in jail. So it's perfectly fine. We don't need to try anything new. And speaking of jails and prisons real quick, uh, before I get back to my main point, I've been reading Our Prisons Obsolete um, by Angela Davis. And it's crazy to me how few people, including myself, really understood the complexity of where the prison system comes from. Uh, The penitentiary, uh, some say, was first theorized back in 1757 as a a punishment for, quote, penitent prostitutes. Um, And then, you know, throughout the years, you had the colonialists, uh, I should say the colonists, and the, the Europeans who brought imprisonment, who brought that form of punishment and quote-unquote justice, which all the way back in the 18th century was being proved time and time again to be unsuccessful for actually rehabilitating behaviors and pushing people away from crime. Not only that, but you know, and thinking about how this this idea of prisons being so central to our our history here in the U.S., the way that we operate, it doesn't work. It's never worked. More often than not, it causes people to go in for petty crimes and come out and then commit violent crimes because they're put in a cell for 20, 23 hours a day. They're told... You're not a human being. They're treated like an animal. And then they come out into the, quote, free world. And you expect them to act towards their fellow human beings in any way other than what they've been bred and taught is proper. When someone only sees violence, and violence is such a broad term, and I'm really getting off topic here, so I want to reel it back, but... In this country, violence is starvation. Violence is no health care. Violence is houselessness. Violence is outright abuse and murder by the police. Violence is emotional and situational abuse by, you know, plucking poor, suffering black, brown, black and brown folks and throwing them into the military so that they can, quote, make it. This is, this is all violence. So when you get thrown in a prison, that's your whole life, right? 
And then prison just compounds on top of that and then doesn't let you go anywhere for time and time. And you just get wound up. You just get wound up. How do you expect people to react? How honestly would anyone react mentally to a situation like that? But back to my point. Marxism is scientific because all throughout the 1800s, all throughout the 1900s, you had people all over the world who rather than just, you know, okay, let's get together and let's blow up this bank or, okay, let's all get together and let's go take over this police precinct or, hey, let's all get together and carry our signs down to Washington, D.C. I'm sure the people will really care. All those folks had been doing the same strategies that protesters and that, you know, folks who were trying to change the very fabric of society had been trying since the liberal revolutions in France and America in the 17 and 1800s. They had been proven unsuccessful through the very implementation of the governments of whom the, you know, those people made up the protests. So you had these, these liberal assholes in America and in France come into positions of government after committing to those types of, you know, protests, those types of reformism, that type of explicit opportunism. And it, it is where the quote from the Communist Manifesto, um, the people or the masses, the proletariat, cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for their own. It has to be wholeheartedly smashed. The bourgeois state, the state of the bourgeoisie, the ruling class has to be demolished. And in its place, we must plant the seeds of and allow a new state to sprout. The state of the proletariat, the people's the people, the masses in charge of their own communities, the people in charge of their own administration, of their own governments. That is the difference. And then when these people, these liberals in France and America were put into government, what did they do? They just became oppressors themselves because they were already. In France, you had the middle class you know, shop owners and the, the, the artisans and the, the shipmakers and the traders and all these folks who had, you know, social power to some extent. They weren't the homeless. They weren't being uh, conscripted to war often. Um, they weren't being, you know, sent to the gallows for X, Y, and Z criminology, criminality of poverty and houselessness. So they had the ability to run their mouth and say, fuck this government, we need to do shit. They had the social power. Same in America. You know, you have Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, George uh, Washington. These are all people. George Washington was the richest man in America when he became president. That's not some made up, like, that's that's the truth. George Washington was the richest person in America when he was the first president. Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, they all owned shops. They came from wealthy families in Europe. They were able to come over here and buy land outright. 
own shops. Like, this was, you know, most immigration to the colonies at that time, you had people who had to go into five to ten years of indentured servitude just to be able to afford to come to the colonies. And these people can come over from Europe and buy land, shops, own, you know, these these aren't the people, right? So you have these liberals going to government and you have liberalism takeover, which, you know, to theorize it very, very simply is the belief that I don't really like it the way it is, so if we could make it a little bit better, that would be cool. Um, Believe it or not, that's not like a real hard line, and that doesn't really convince many people who don't actually give a shit about what you think or care about. If we look into our government today in the United States, you see that outright. You see the Democrats and the liberals and, you know, the centrists and those folks getting in, you know, Washington and going, well, we think we should pass this bill, or we think this is a good idea, we should give, you know, social welfare to some people, or we think that we shouldn't, you know, kick out immigrants. You got House of Representatives full of supposedly radical and revolutionary people. But nobody understands that they're in the House for a reason, because they're playing the game. If we wanted these people to actually change things, they wouldn't be joining up at the table. They wouldn't be grabbing a chair and pulling up just to be able to sit with, you know, the cool kids, to sit with the big, you know, the adults. They would be taking, you know, if they're actually radical and revolutionary, they'd be taking the table, flipping that shit over, lighting it on fire, and doing a little bit something to the rest of the people that are standing around with, uh, you know... uh, without hesitancy um but yeah i mean like when bernie sanders aoc rashida talib ilan omar like when they run their mouth and say we gotta we gotta help palestine or we gotta help the working class or we gotta do this that and the other thing tune out for a second tune out of what they're saying and over the next few weeks after they run their mouth watch what what bills they pass watch what bills they sign And watch what little actually gets done in the way of helping the people. AOC, Bernie Sanders, and all these folks just sent millions of dollars over to Israel. I don't give a fuck about what any of them say, and I don't give a fuck about you defending them. They are not your friends. They are not my friends. They are opportunists, and they are reformists, and they are revisionists, which means they will not see us through to change. I don't care how much you like them. I don't care how much you hope. I don't care how much you think they're good people. That doesn't fucking matter. If you don't know how to fix an engine, but you really want to fix an engine, it doesn't matter how much you try and try again. You're going to fuck that engine up. Step aside and ask the people who know how to fix an engine to come in and fix the engine. But sometimes, you gotta blow the goddamn engine up, throw it out the fucking window, light it on fire, and get a few folks together and go, hey, how about we figure out how to make something better than an engine? Because that's what, that's the stage that we're at here in the United States. There's not a goddamn thing on the table in Washington, D.C. There's not a goddamn thing in Washington, D.C. that exists for you and me. If it did, we'd probably be reaping some benefits from it. And the only benefits that we get is this supposed free world where none of us can afford rent. 
None of us have stable jobs. None of us can eat healthy food. We're all in debt. We're all depressed. We don't get to spend time on our hobbies. Our earth is dying. And there's people making billions of dollars off of that while we all suffer. That's not a free world, folks. And I don't fucking care how much you want it to be. It's not. Um, when you're talking about this idea of, okay, get someone in here who knows what they're doing. You got anarchists, socialists, leftists, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, who have no goddamn conception of history. There is 6,500 plus years of human history written and recorded. Read it. If you don't want to look like a stupid asshole when you're getting up on Facebook and talking about this is what we got to do, this is who's at fault, look at this dipshit over here, oh, China is bad, oh, oh, you know, Venezuela is bad, Vietnam is bad, shut the fuck up and read a history book and not one that says printed in the United States of America. Because God damn it, if you really think that your oppressor is going to teach you that you're oppressed, you're really, really kidding yourself, my friend. And at this point, I'm kind of sick and tired of trying to convince people of that because, you know, folks want to argue with me. Folks want to give me an attitude. You know what I'm saying? And like, not for nothing, it's not my job to sit around and, you know, try to bird feed folks. I'm going to get on here and I'm going to talk about what I need to talk about. I'm going to put the shit in people's face as I need to put it in their face. And those of you who don't want to follow along, those of you who don't get what needs to be done, have fun being a counter-revolutionary, dog. Like, much love to you. Sorry. But, like, you're choosing your fate. At this point, it's so clear. The contradictions between rich and poor, the contradictions between supposed first world and third world, the contradictions between bourgeois liberal society and the laws and rights that it tells us that we have and the actual laws and rights that we have. I mean, at this point, anyone who's still supporting any kind of idea that, oh, we should support the United States or, oh, we should support Britain or any nation state that is still continuously participating in imperialism needs to wholeheartedly be taken taken under the hands of the working people in that country and made wholeheartedly the people's nation because it is the working people across the world who recognize that imperialism, capitalism, and war only kill working class people. It is only folks like you and I who will die from this World War III that we're gearing up for all over the world. It is only you and I who will die from the extension of capitalism, the heightened prices. It is only you and I who will not have homes, who will not have health care, who will not have nutritional food, nor the ability or time to grow it ourselves. It's not going to be the folks who are putting us in those positions, who are making us poor, who are making us hungry, who are making us houseless, who are making us politically, socially, and economically powerless and hopeless. We are being made to feel this way, but this is not the case. There are homes to be had. There are doctors, nurses, medical equipment, hospitals, medicines, plenty. There is school. There is food. 
There is no reason why you and I should be living the lives that we are living except for somebody is making us. So at the end of all of this, I want to say the reason why Marxism, right? And this is what I really wanted to talk about and got wholeheartedly off the, you know, but that's fine. Marxism is at one point has been described as the science of the proletariat. People don't like that claim to science on the left. They don't like it when Marxists try to call Marxism science. They don't like that because it makes them feel uh, ideologically uh, secondary. It makes them feel as if someone's trying to talk down on them or make them feel small or unintelligent. And you should know if anybody ever speaks to you in that way, you have my permission to punch them in the face because we don't talk to people like that. We can get angry, we can call people stupid, we can call people ignorant, but then we put our hand around them and we say, let me help you. Because that's what the point is. And we don't even need to call them ignorant or stupid. I'm an asshole with an ego when I like to run my mouth. You can punch me in the face too if I deserve it, which I might. But the point is, you're not ideologically secondary. Marxism is a science because that's what it was dedicated to be. Marxism, unlike a lot of other leftist ideology, is 100% founded on a scientific basis of experimentation and lesson learning. Anarchism, as a specific example, specifically claims that it is spontaneity and unorganization that leads towards successful revolution. If you read Bakunin, if you read uh, Kropotkin, if you read Bernstein, and many different, uh, you know, folks who ended up, you know, theorizing a lot of the foundational anarchist texts, you recognize that it is the very claim of Bakunin and Kropotkin to avoid this organized, quote, bureaucratic, quote, rigid structure of mass organization. Why? How would that make sense? So let me, let me ask you this. Say in your area, right, a police officer kills someone on, on, you know, as they do for no good reason, because no police officer officer should kill anyone because they're a police officer, not a murderer. Although they are synonymous terms, their descriptor when they applied for the job was not person who pulls trigger to kill people. It was police officer. And on the side of their car, it does say protect and serve. Although the, the missing ink is who, um, it does say protect and serve. It doesn't say pick up a gun and shoot and kill someone. So maybe they should be training these people on that. Maybe pointing that out to them. I don't know. I'm not a genius. What am I, you know, who am I to even say anything, right? Just, you know, just spitballing here. So, you know, it's kind of like a difficult discussion to have because I definitely don't have the most expertise on the subject to be leading this discussion necessarily. But when you look at a lot of the practice, right, the putting into action the ideas that different theorists had, for example, the revolutions of 1848, the revolutions of 1798, the revolution of 1871, the Paris Commune, 
the revolution in Russia, 1917, both in February and in October. That's actually the greatest example to look at, especially for this discussion of opportunism and revisionism. Look at the different uh, look at the difference between the bourgeois Menshevik February Revolution and how little it did for the people and how the people themselves actually ended up rising up against that dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And you will see clearly the opportunism at play because it is the people who actually lead the charge for a successful revolution. It is the people who actually will see through the change that needs to be had because it's the people who are they themselves actually suffering the problems that the revolution aims to solve. It's not these rich assholes who tell you that they give a fuck about us that will actually do anything because at the end of the day, they're taken care of. So it doesn't matter whether or not they have good hearts or whatever. As soon as that check comes running, they're willing to take it. And we see that time and time again. I don't care who you're talking about. Money talks, especially in a capitalist society. And when you are not the person who is at the bottom, who knows that if you don't do anything to change this situation, you're going to be stuck in this situation for the rest of your life. There's a whole different willingness to do what needs to be done than there is up in the halls of power in Washington, D.C. Again, even if people have good hearts, even if people really care, as soon as their own personal situation is taken care of, unless they are united in the fight because of their support of its very ideology, and they are in support of seeing it through to the end, they will turn away. They will go take their little piece of cake or pie or whatever makes this, you know, a better analogy, and they'll fuck off. They don't give a fuck. It's really ridiculous and upsetting, but, like, at the same time, I don't know why we keep falling back on it. And this, you know, again, these theories of anarchism and scientific socialism, as it was once called, um, they date all the way back to the early 1800s. So, like, it's very difficult for me to have any kind of, like, sympathy for people who want to sit here and argue with me about Marxism. Because um, more often than not, you haven't read a single goddamn word of Marx. And, like, I'm not trying to sit here and be like, oh, look at me, I read. But if you've never read a book about uh botany, you probably shouldn't argue with someone on the most proper way to like prune leaves, unless for some reason you have immense expertise on the subject without having learned anything about it, which most people don't. Most people don't. I mean that, you know, (laughs) most quote unquote geniuses are geniuses Because they are given the environment and the opportunities to become geniuses. Um, There's a lot of quote-unquote geniuses that have probably been lost throughout the years due to genocide, due to, you know, starvation, due to all these things which our government still commits to these days. Um, 
So, hey, you know, that's that's the beauty of America right there. But anywho, back to the topic. Maybe I can finish out here. Maybe I can actually have a intelligible um, sentence seen through all the way to the end. But, you know, you have in Marxism with Marx and Engels, right? Because that's where Marxism comes from initially, Marx and Engels. You have two people who a lot of you and a lot of other people have a lot of stuff to say. You can say it. You can comment about how Marx was a racist. You can comment about how Engels was a sexist. You can uh, argue about the the fact that both of them were probably assholes because who writes the shit that they wrote and wasn't an asshole? Like, not for nothing, you know? But anyways... The difference and the point is that Marx and Engels dedicated their whole lives to changing the problems that were in society. They dedicated their whole lives to creating a equal society based on, you know, some kind of alleviating tactic to take away the discriminatory suffering of women, the... uh awful situations that the working class found themselves in, and there was a lot of things they came up short on. There was a lot of things that they didn't talk about as much as they should have. They spent 50 years theorizing about how capitalism actually functions and wrote over three volumes that total, I think, like 5,000 pages. You can only do so much, right? And now, again, There's adequate and ample accusations to make against these people, and you can make them, and you can cast aside Marxism if you want. Do whatever you want. I'm not here to convince anybody, only just to rant on my uh, ride to work and while I'm getting ready at work. But Marxism is not Marx and Engels. Marxism is the science of the proletariat. So as much as you can and need to, Cut Marx and Engels completely from it. But you have to recognize that that's where those correct ideas came from. You want to know how we can call them correct? Look at the difference between the revolutions that took part in Italy with the anarchists who eventually capitulated and actively took part in the fascist government in a lot of cases under Mussolini. And look at the difference at the same period of time, at the Russian working class, and how they were able to successfully overthrow not only, not only the aristocracy, not only did they overthrow the czar, then when that government, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, the opportunists, the revisionists, like the Mensheviks, they saw clearly because of the education because of the holistic picture, because of the scientific nature of Marxism that they had directly applied to their situations, they were able to see as to why that government did not actually benefit them and why then that they had to overthrow that government. And they did. And they were able to keep the Soviet Union, alive and well, 
for over 60 years. Now, a lot of folks want to say, well, actually, you know, da-da-da-da, here's, here's where the Soviet Union went wrong. They did this, that, and the other thing. Here's where they went revisionist. And yeah, we can have that conversation. But here we're, ta- we're here to talk about the scientific use of Marxism and how the use of Marxism by the Soviets was what saw 60 plus years, not three months like the Paris Commune. The Soviet Union and the Chinese, the Communist uh, 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 Republic of China, the People's Republic of China, my apologies, I couldn't think of the name. (laughs) The People's Republic of China is still around. Whether you want to call it revisionist, opportunist, non-socialist, imperialist, sure, whatever. I don't live in China and probably neither do you. So we should probably both keep our mouths shut about it until we actually have any factual knowledge to base it off of. But if you want to make those accusations, again, I can't refute them because I don't stand in China. I don't know what it, what's going on down there or over there, down there, what's going on over there necessarily. But I can tell you that any government that speaks about their people the way that their government does, any government that goes into other countries like they are right now all over the global south and gives aid, gives food, gives vaccines, gives doctoral training like Cuba does, another socialist state. That's the difference, is they recognize what needs to be done. When you're a Marxist, you recognize that no revolution, no mass organization, no change to this society can be done in half measures. It has to be wholeheartedly a continuity and a rupture from the society that we live in. We have to take the world that we live in, because we can't just blow it up and make a new one, and we have to turn it into something that actually works for the mass majority of people who stand on this earth every single day. Not just a select few, not just the wealthy, not just the privileged. It has to be something that works for all. And I keep hinting at it in a lot of different my show, uh, shows. How do we do that? One of the very first ways is by putting the very people themselves in positions of power in their own government, educating them through struggle, educating them through mass organization, through Marxism, and putting them in places to directly administrate their own government That is actual democracy. What we have is not democracy. And so if you want to actually talk about a free world, let's talk about socialism. And let's talk about building socialism. So if you want to do that, you can keep listening to my show and listen to all the other episodes I have. But for today, you know, that's it. I don't know if this was an educational episode. I feel like I went off on a lot of tangents. I hope you like it. It it might just come up as a bonus episode. Um... But yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, If you don't already, please go ahead and find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at In Defense of Liberation. Uh, Go ahead and follow me there. If you want to reach out to me for any other reason and you feel like DMing me is not enough, you can go ahead and email me. You can find me at In Defense of Liberation, no caps, no spaces, at gmail.com. You can also find my blog and my website at forliberation, again, no caps, no spaces, dot wix, 
website, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com forward slash website. Um, and you can check me and my uh, blog out over there. Uh, but anyways, thanks for listening. I appreciate you folks. I hope everyone is well. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Um, stay revolutionary. Uh, books I'm reading this week are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, Guerrilla Warfare by Che Guevara, uh, Continuity and Rupture by J. Malfoyad Paul. Um, what else am I reading? The Red Deal, Indigenous Action to Save the Earth. And a few other books, if you want any text recommendations or need help finding books, always hit me up. Um, There's a bunch of good sources out there. Um, But yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, folks. Bye.